year. How many of us are excited to get out of 2020? Father, we thank you, Lord, that you're the same in 2020, and you will be the same in 2021 forevermore. Thank you that you never change and that you're with us. You love us. You've saved us. You put the Holy Spirit in us as believers, and you've given us power to overcome sin and ultimately death. And we worship you for that. And Lord, we thank you that this year you've highlighted that this will be a year of prayer, of increased fellowship and intercession for our brothers and sisters and the things of this world. And Father, I pray that you would burn our hearts to pray, that you'd make us a people who long to fellowship with you and desire to be with you. And God, that you would burden our hearts to pray for the things that are on your heart is through the scriptures and that we would pray specifically and pray persistently this year more than we ever have before that we'll look back on December 2021 and we'll say we were a people of prayer and we want to continue to be those people God I pray that we would love your word we would honor it read it study it live it teach it to others. God, one of the greatest gifts you can give us is the gift of hunger and faith. And we pray for more of that. Pray for wisdom. You told us to pray for wisdom. We already have your grace. We already have your love. We don't need to pray for those things. But we do pray for wisdom. We pray that we'd be a people of joy that we'd honor one another even more this year. We would choose humility and look at the model in Philippians 2, Jesus humbling himself, knowing that exaltation is just around the corner. And we do pray, Father, that we would be gracious and forgiving towards each other as you have been towards us. That is our great model, Jesus. God, I pray that you would speak this morning in a fresh way through your word in Acts 6. God, that we would not only receive your word, but we'd find the power through the Holy Spirit to live it out. And we thank you in advance for what you're going to do this morning, what you're already doing. As we continue our worship now in the worship of hearing your word, knowing that it is truly your inspired word. It is perfect and able to cleanse us and able to empower us to do all the things that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be here. January 3rd. Isn't that crazy? Is anybody else just feeling like, how can it be January 3rd already? It's crazy. Well, you guys probably notice. Uh, something very large in front of your seat. Those are your prayer journals for the year. Um, hopefully you run out of that in the first week. Need another one? No, <laughs> um, No, but this will get you started. It'll be good. I did. So go ahead and pick those up or, or maybe on your seat. I don't know. I think they're in front of you. Uh, just go ahead and look at them. We stamped them, each and every one of them. If you don't have prayer on it, just Talk to Jessica up here in the front. She'll stamp it personally for you. Um, but these are going to be our prayer journals this year. We really felt like last year was a, to be anchored in the word. 
How many of us know that's true, that we really needed a good course correction this year? And I really do believe that though it was hard uh, and it was uh, very much trying for many of us, uh, it was really, really refreshing and good. And now there's even more of a love in this room for God's word, which will teach us how to pray. We can't, uh, I'm not saying that we can't start with prayer. There's no like necessarily any order, but we find how to pray and how to honor God through prayer, through the word of God. And I really wish I could go through Luke 11 uh, and Luke 18 this morning, but I'm going to touch on 1 Peter just briefly, and then we'll go into our Acts passage. But go ahead, if you can, there should be a pen there too, right on the top, Luke 11 and Luke 18. And, and right on the journal. It's already on the journal. You guys are brilliant, amazing. Where is it at? On the front. Okay. All right. There you have it. Well, as it say persistently and specifically, man, did, just look at your journal. That's amazing. I should probably look at the journal. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to the new year. <laughs> I need to be a little bit more, uh, like more, what is it? Uh, yeah, observant. There you go. Observant. Okay. Well, anyways, look at that because those are the two passages that we won't necessarily touch on. Maybe we'll do it in February um, at our Acts 1-8 conference, mission conference. Always want to call that world mandate, but we can't. Uh, Acts 1-8 mission conference in Tampa. We'll probably go through that passage, both of those passages there at some point. But we'll be touching on the, this theme of prayer throughout the year. And just saying that we want to be a people who pray specifically and pray persistently. And also that uh, also along with this theme, you can write that down too, if it's probably not in small print on the journal, but that we want to increase in our fellowship with the Father. That's why we pray. We want to increase in our fellowship with him. It's not, see, what happens is if we're just all about the word, with the, the shadow mission of seeking more of Jesus through the word, sometimes we can puff up with knowledge. Oftentimes it could be a competition, how much we know. And I'm telling you one thing, we don't want to become those people. I've seen that happen in seminaries across the country. I've seen that happen in churches. I do not want to become those types of people. However, I don't want to be shallow. I don't think it's good just to say, hey, I want to read one little line on the passage, or I want to approach the word of God just saying, what does it mean to me? I've said this often, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What does it mean to God? That's what matters. And so we do need to study the word. Ezra 7.10, it's a great passage that says that we want to study God's word, right? We want to live it out, and then we want to teach it to the next generation. That was his mandate. That's who Ezra was. That was his calling on his life. Should be all of our callings, whether we're a teacher uh, by profession or vocation, but we're all called to make disciples. We're all called to teach it to the next generation, 2 Timothy 2.2. So, we are called to fellowship with God, that the word should drive us to our knees. It should drive us to this place of, God, I want to, I'm knowing who you are. I want to interact with you. Would you teach me how to pray? And this year, we're going to learn how to pray. And that Luke 11 is not so much a formula as, as much as it's a structure. It, it, it gives us a structure how to pray. And so you could just even write for the first, for tomorrow if you want. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but just go, our father. What does that mean? And then hallowed be thy name. We don't use hallowed, by the way, anymore. We use, it should be, it's holy, right? You are holy. What does that mean? 
that we have this, this interesting thing where God is calling us to be intimate with him, but also at the same time, he's holy. And there's, there is a, this separation between us, but it's been brought uh, together close by the blood of Jesus. We're able to approach him. And Hebrews 4, 6 says we can walk right in or run right into the presence of God, into the throne room of grace. And so we have that. And then you could go through the whole prayer. You could just break it down. There's probably about 10 elements of that prayer. You could break it down. But I'll, I'll, I'll show you this, that the first so many verses has to do with God, not us. In other words, we don't waltz right in, in the presence of God and just start asking for the things that we want. In other words, J.R. Packer, he's one of the old theologians, he's, he says it's not, prayer is not a way to just twist God's arm and get what we want. It's, it's, a, it's a humble expression saying that we are a people that are dependent on him. And so as you look through that prayer, you'll see that the first so many lines has to do with God and uh, getting our view right towards him before we begin to ask. And I'll tell you, if you really study the first so many verses of that passage of Luke 11, teach us how to pray, by the time you get to the last so many, give us our daily bread, I mean, you realize, I already have it. I already have. Why? Because it's a promise. Matthew 6 says he'll give us everything that we need if we look at him, if we seek his kingdom first. We already have forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. We already have that. I mean, we could... If we confess our sins, he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can go on and on and on. But part of me just wants to preach it, but I'm going to hold myself back from that. Um, <laughs> okay, so Luke uh, 18 is praying persistently that, you know, there are times where God delays a, a prayer, not because he forgot or he's not listening, um, but because he's, he's working on our hearts. And there's... All sorts of reasons. Perhaps it's not because of his will, but maybe it is because of his will and he's delaying for a reason. But ultimately, we put our trust in him. But there's certain prayers that just will not be answered unless we persist in the prayer. How many know the story of Daniel, that there was just this spiritual warfare that was happening? There's this delay, and we don't know what happens in the heavenly realm. Unbeknownst to us, that's why we have to know the word. We could be greatly discouraged and give up in prayer if we don't learn to persist in prayer. It's very important. All right, so 1 Peter 4. It's going to seem like I'm all over the place this morning, but I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, I just want to give you a little bit of a jump start. So put that in your prayer journal right now. 1 Peter 4, verse 11 to 7, I believe it is. First Peter 4. 7 to 11. Okay, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Ever and ever. Amen. All right, so what this pastor says is that we want to be sober in prayer this year because the days are getting more evil. We're approaching more of the end. I'm not saying we are officially we're in the end times. We've always been in the end times since Jesus came. And we're waiting his second return. But if we become busy bodies, 
if we're not sober in spirit, it will distract our prayer life. And I believe that that means what is our media intake? What are we distracted with? What are the things that are really not all that important, honestly? Whether that's social media or being into into politics too much or any of those things, they can be distractants or they could drive you to prayer. They can. You could scroll on Facebook or something and see something and it could cause you to prayer, but many of us don't do that. We just keep scrolling. But that can be a place. It can be material for prayer. But what he's saying is be of sound judgment and be sober in spirit, not in the Holy Spirit, but be sober in your spirit. Make sure that you're not busy bodies and and very busy in your minds and in your spirit. Why? Because you won't be able to have the discipline to pray. And God is saying this year is a year of prayer. It always is, right? And it's not like next year we're not going to pray. But he's disciplining ourselves right now in such a way, just as last year. It's not that this year we're not going to be in the Word. We're going to be in the Word even more because it was a course correction. He disciplined us in such a way that says, hey, you need my Word more than your intuition, more than your uh, feelings. This is such a therapeutic age. It's, it, it's, I read a great book uh, Triumph of the Modern Self, if you want to get that book, it's phenomenal, uh, by Carl Truman. He's a professor at uh, Princeton University. But it talks about the psychological man, why, we're, why our culture is the way it is today, the therapeutic self, that we're all about turn inward and find meaning there and as uh, individual expression and all that. And not to say that those things are necessarily bad, but that isn't the, how we find truth. We anchor in the word. And from that place, we'll know who God is and we'll fellowship with him so that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So we're, we're pleading with God and saying, God, whatever it is, whatever your will is in heaven, whatever your will, which is godliness, it's goodness. I mean, there's all sorts of things. Praise and worship, whatever your will is, may it be done on earth. We're partnering with him not to get our will, but to submit to his Sound good? You can meditate on those. That's enough right there for at least a week worth of material. But go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts 6, 8 through 15. I just want to say a few things here before we get in um, that I think is important. That our culture today, uh, I was reading uh, something interesting that Harvard University right now, uh, unfortunately, their, their history classes all that they offer at this elite university, and this is true for pretty much all universities today, you can look it up, that they're offering the, one semester out of all their classes, it's becoming uh, more slim in the area of learning about the Reformation. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, you can learn about that area. It's history. It's true. It happened. Uh, just what happened in Geneva, Switzerland, the transformation that happened. And even if you're not religious, you could still learn something about it. Um, and not only that, but there's, a, there's one class that they offer that covers, I think, material between the 1400s all the way to about 1800. Now, you can't, how do you learn history in that little time in about three or four months? And then uh, about that covers the Renaissance and the Reformation, so people aren't really learning that. And then the rest of the classes have to do with Marxism. 
The rest of the classes have to do with, uh, you know, basically Freud, psychology, uh, the sexual revolution, etc. Really, that covers uh, basically the 1900s, mostly the 1960s. It's really interesting, and what I've been reading is even more interesting, that this is a culture, really, that considers themselves anti-culture, anti-historical. What that means is we don't want to tether ourselves to any history because, oh, that might give us some level of objective truth to anchor in. We don't want it. It's bad. All it shows us is things that are, have gone wrong that have maybe been offensive. I mean, some of them are shameful, like slavery and et cetera, those things that are not so good. But the reality is it's still history. And even in history, there's the good and the bad, right? In every history, there is. That doesn't mean, oh, I'm offended by that, let's get rid of it, as if the sexual revolution is not offensive. But what they're telling you, what they want you to know is uh, that culture is bad, patriotism is bad, do not love the United States, do not love the culture. I mean, if you go to Sweden even, I mean, you can't find a Swedish flag. I asked one time when I was there, I said, well, I can't you, I mean, there's no Swedish flags anywhere. I mean, there is in parliament, but besides that, you can't really find any. You know, not like here, you know, you go down the neighborhoods and you see American flags, but I said, well, we're anti-culture. We're anti-historical. It's, it, it, if, we, if we begin to do that, patriotism is bad. Let me tell you something. We need a family. We need a family. And I'll tell you, the, the, our family is not, in the 1901, the charismatic movement. We need a family that goes all the way back. And I think today, the reason why I think this generation is all over the place and depressed and, and can't, don't know who their family is, is because we've never been taught who our family truly is. Who's our family? Well, let me tell you, it goes all the way back. A great passage would be, just to, as a refreshment, would be Hebrews 11. It goes all the way back to Adam. And then it goes through Abraham to Moses to David. It goes through the prophets. It goes through Nehemiah and the rebuilding it goes to the, the minor prophets, the major prophets, of course, the minor prophets in the, call, the, the coming of Jesus, even through the intertestamental period, the 400 years. And of course, the birth of Jesus and the apostles and the early church fathers. I challenge you to read the early church fathers. They're the reason why we're sitting here today and that a lot of the belief systems, a lot of the things that we preach today go back to the early church fathers, go back to the book of Genesis knowing that God has created the world, not some sort of chance or big explosion. There's a reason why we believe what we believe. There's a reason why we preach what we preach. It's history. And I'm declaring today that history is good and that we need history if you want to actually make it for the long haul. If you actually want to make it, the reason why people are flopping left and right, there's a great apostasy that's coming. There really is. And you will see your friends and family literally abandon the faith because they're not tethered to something that is solid. The word, of course, but a family. We need a family. And not only just the early church fathers, of course, that leads us up to about 100, 
50-ish AD, into Athanasius, the one who said, this is the canon of Scripture in 367. And then moving our way all the way into, uh, in, in Middle Ages were a terrible time. <laughs> Just, we get to about 1100 to 14, yeah, it was a terrible, terrible time. Uh, the church got institutionalized, became very religious. Within the Reformation, the glory of the Reformation in the uh, 1500s, and then moving our way through uh, the, the Reformation um, into the Great Awakening, and then even in the last 100 years, there's been some, some heroes of the faith, some great models of the faith. God has provided us with wonderful models throughout history over the last 6,000 years, amazing models. And that your faith is anchored in a historical faith, and that is so important. Schools across America are teaching that you right now that history is bad. What matters now is we create history. That's what they're saying. We're the ones who create history. We're the ones that come up with truth that is false. That's why we're in a mess today. But I think there could be a generation that not only reads the Bible, but also church history and knows where they come from. That this is something so great to know, hey, as I read the early church fathers, as I read the Reformation, as I read these people, I realize, wow, I'm not alone. That's why so many people are like, I'm alone, I don't know, because you, you, you read the Bible and then you fast forward 2,000 years, and you realize there's a lot that happened within those 2,000 years, a lot. Amazing, glorious things that we can learn. And you know what? A lot of the things that people believed weren't so good. It doesn't mean that we throw it away. We're not a cancel culture. The church isn't. And that's what, the, that's what the universities are doing. They're canceling everything. They're tearing down statues. It's history. We can learn from it. We can actually learn that slavery was bad and learn from it. We can actually learn that treating women badly is not, is not a good thing. We don't want to repeat that. We can realize that communism is disastrous. And so is socialism. It isn't good, but we can learn from history instead of realize it's bad, get rid of it, don't listen to it, because the devil knows if we can find history, we can find truth, and that will anchor us from here until eternity. Well, the reason why we're saying that right now is because Acts 6 provides us with another model. His name is Stephen. Stephen is an incredible model, and the, the, if you're taking notes, I think it's up here, but the title of this message today is Three Personal Characteristics Needed in 2021. I think not only this year, 2021, but also in the years to come, this, these characteristics will matter more in these coming years than maybe perhaps any time before. There is a transition from Peter, Acts 1 through 5, 10 through 12 and 15. Peter was the dominant character up until that time. And then entered Stephen and Philip, the evangelists. And then Paul takes care of the rest of Acts. But as you look, let's just read Acts 6, 8 through 15. But Stephen is an incredible model. And I believe that this is going to be something we'll look back at all year. Because I believe that with the times that we're in right now, we're going to need these characteristics. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men, from what is called the synagogue of the freemen freedmen, including the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia 
in Asia rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Isn't that glorious? Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. Here's the mob that we see often in our culture. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they, pulled for, they pulled for, put forward excuse me, false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like a face of an angel. The first thing that we notice with Stephen is that he has godly character. That is the first point. He has godly character. And there's four points that I want to speak about godly characters. Number one, he's full of faith. He, had, he was a man full of faith. He was confident in the sovereign plan of God. As Heath, I'll be in California next week, but uh, Heath will be preaching next week. He's got, got the orange mask. It looks like he's about to hunt something. But he is a, a man of God, man full of faith. He's a man just like Stephen in so many ways. He was confident. Stephen was confident in the sovereign plan of God. Why do I know that? Because look at seven. He's going to preach on this, but uh, Acts 7, 1 through 51. He was confident in the sovereign plan of God, tracing the Old Testament. Talk about history. Tracing the Old Testament from, from uh, pretty much Genesis onward to the birth of, in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. He was confident in his plan. Romans 14, 8 says, For if we live, we live for the Lord. For if we die... We die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. He's confident. Faith is confidence in his word and his plan and who God says he is. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. He was confident also that the prophecies of Jesus were true. A number of weeks ago, we talked about Isaiah 53. Just if you are doubting the inspiration of scripture, just reread that and then reread the gospels. You can see how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy that was 700 years old. And we found him in the Dead Sea Scrolls around 150 BC before Jesus. And even then, it dated even further back to the time that Isaiah wrote it. We can be confident that the prophecies of Jesus are true. He says here in Acts 7.52, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who have previously announced the coming of the righteous one, and you have now become betrayers and murderers of him. He was not only confident in the prophecies, but he was confident that Jesus had indeed been raised from the dead and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. Acts 7, 55, 56, he says, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He literally saw the resurrected Jesus next to the Father. I want to read, just for inspiration's sake, I want to read uh, Hebrews 11. So I think it'll be good for us just to, again, look. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 7. But it says, Now faith is the assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of the things not seen. 
Stephen didn't actually see and witness the resurrection of Jesus or the life of Jesus, for that matter. He was not a, a, really not a true apostle in that sense. He was raised up to be a sort of deacon and oversight over the distribution of food, as we saw earlier in verse 5. But it says that he was convicted of the things not convicted of the things not seen. He knew because the apostles taught this. All we have today, none of us saw the ministry of Jesus, and none of us had the, the luxury of seeing the resurrected Jesus or seeing him ascend into heaven. But we know this. It actually says in the Gospels that blessed are those. Remember when, when Thomas knelt down, he's like, oh my God, he was worshiping Jesus because he realized he finally believed that there were holes in his hands. He actually saw them. But then Jesus says, blessed are those people that don't see these things and still believe. That's you and me. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was a righteous he was righteous, God testifying about gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks today. That's our history. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. How many of us want to be Enoch? <laughs> Enoch and Elisha. Those, <laughs> Elijah, I should say. It says, see, uh, would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God by the things not yet seen and reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. What a glorious history. And then it just keeps going, even all the way up to verse, I think it's 40. So, and that says, a lot of us, though, I, I know, I don't know about you, but I love the passage in Mark 9 when he says, when the father uh, has a little bit of unbelief, he's like, hey, I believe, I know that you could do this, but help my unbelief. I believe that's going to be a prayer for many of us this year. You're going to write that down in your prayer journals. That's something I pray often. Lord, I do believe. I mean, I trust you. I know your word is true. I know that you're real. I know that you've even come through to me so many times. Why is this so difficult? Help my unbelief. Help me to believe. Help me to trust you even in this hard circumstance. You know what? God is not offended by that. Because Jesus performed the miracle right after that in Mark 9. He's actually offended by your pride, not your honesty and your unbelief. Not only was he full with faith, but he's full of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And also Colossians 3.16, be filled with the word of God. It's, you know, the, let the word of God richly dwell within you. That was a theme last year I played on that over and over and over again, that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the word of God. Not that the word and the spirit are the same. God, the word of God is not God. Holy Spirit is God. But as you're, how do you know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? You're filled with its word. You're filled with the word of God. You have a love for it. You have a, a, a fruit of, a, of obedience. That's how you know you're filled. And that's what Stephen did. And you're filled with grace. He was given so much grace to, 
endure this persecution? How many of us need grace in our workplace? How many of us need grace with our boss to endure with our boss? Now, of course, it's not like the Pharisees, although you could have a Pharisee as a boss, but I don't know. How many of us need grace in parenting? Two hands. <laughs> it's a lot of grace. But he was full of grace, and, he, and, and in this case, he, he believed the same thing that Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 12, where he knew that the grace of God was sufficient in his trial. You know what didn't control Stephen? Hate. Fear didn't control him. What do you see in our culture today? All you see is fear and hate. And I'm not talking about the culture that says we're haters because we speak truth. That will always be. And that's fine. If they're going to call us haters, that's a trophy for me. If they're going to call me racist, that's a trophy for me. For all the little words. Of the, I mean, that's just the culture. They, they don't have truth. We will be called those things. We'll be called homophobic in the days to come. Get ready for it. More than ever before, Christians will be called these things. But we can't have hate. And the definition, let me say this, church, that the definition of love is to speak the truth. It's to speak the truth. And when we do, we'll be called haters. And that's fine then. But let me tell you, when you're being persecuted and then hate comes out, that's wrong. You see the difference? Fear and hate cannot dominate the church in the 21st century. But it's going to be, I'll tell you, the reason why I say that is because it's going to be so easy. As they had stones ready to throw at him, and he did no wrong. Could have easily had hate for the Jewish people, but he didn't. It says in Acts 7, 59 to 60, they went on stoning Stephen. As he called on the Lord, he said, Lord Jesus Receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him, just like Jesus on the cross. Having said this, he fell asleep. He was gracious towards his persecutors and his executioners. And we need to be gracious towards those people who persecute us. Whether it's just a look. Sometimes persecution can come in the form of a look. Like they just, you said something, you know, maybe you said something about how you followed Jesus and you get a smirk. You get a look. Somebody criticizes you. What's your response to that? What's your response for the lack of truth in this culture? Because what I see today is a lot of complaining. And isn't it interesting that in Philippians 2, I think is another passage for us today, and that in Philippians 2, it says through 5 through 11, is the model of Jesus being tormented, persecuted, struck down, but he did not hate as a result of it, he knew where it would eventually lead to exaltation, ruling at the right hand of the Father. And then what does it say after that? This is how we should act in a crooked and perverse generation, and that's where we're at right now. If you think that was what the fact that that was in Philippi, I mean, 2,000 years later, we are there. But what do we need to do? Shine like stars and not complain. It is so easy to complain we are, you know, uh, about a, 
weeks weeks ahead before the inauguration. Everyone, like, you know, just emails I'm in my inbox over and over and over again of just what are the opinions of man, opinions of man, and it provokes something in you. It's supposed to. Do you know that's what the media wants? It is there and designed to provoke you. But the word of God provokes us to love. It compels us to love, Paul said. I have something deep in me. The reason why I go through what I go through is because I'm compelled to love. I'm compelled to preach. We need to have a model like Paul and a model like Stephen to continue to be compelled to love and to preach in a crooked and perverse generation, not complain. That is so hard, though, which is the reason why you have a prayer journal. (laughs) It's the reason why you have it. All right. Matthew 10, you know, you ever hear the, the expression, you can't kill a dead man? I think that belongs to Stephen. You see, they couldn't really kill him in, in a sense because he already died. What did he die to? Himself. It says here in Matthew ten thirty three, but whoever denies me before the people, I will also deny him before my father who's in heaven. That's probably the worst thing that could ever happen to any human being is to deny Jesus. Matthew 16, 24 to 26 says that Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do if a person gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for a soul? Nothing. He already died. He's like, I, I know why I was put on this earth. It's to glorify Jesus. And I just did. And in front of the religious. In fact, a lot of scholars say Paul was there. Paul was listening. In fact, he could have already, the plant, planting of the seed, he already could have had a seed planted in him because Paul was right there in the next chapter following in chapter 8, Paul says he was beginning to persecute. He was probably a part of that synagogue, which we'll get to in a second here. He was probably a part of that synagogue that came from Sicilia because that's where his hometown was in Tarsus. Paul was probably a part of the debate, (laughs) which is amazing. He was right there. Are you kidding? Stephen's life absolutely had meaning, even though his life was cut short. Incredible. Not only that, but then number four, he was, or D, I guess you can say, he was full of power. He was full of power. He performed great signs and wonders and healing. But let me just say this. You know what got him in trouble? It wasn't the healing. Contrary to the Benny Hinn conferences, that's not what gets him in trouble. It's the preaching. And unfortunately, a lot of those places, the charismatic places where people just get healed and signs and wonders, there's not biblical preaching. Therefore, there's no persecution. What got Stephen in trouble is certainly not a healing, but it was his preaching. It was his preaching. You know what's not going to get you in trouble is asking your waiter, can I pray for you? Although that's fine. And it does open the door to sharing the gospel. But as soon as you mention Jesus, as soon as you mention that they have sinned, as soon as you mention that they need to repent, 
then it's game time. <laughs> but I just, I, it's not meant to be a guilt trip. It's meant to be an invitation. Let's be invited into bold preaching of the gospel this year. It's not meant to be guilt. It's just meant to say, hey, that's truth. I know sometimes we can wear, wear the badge of honor, and I know I do, wear the badge of honor saying, oh, I prayed for my, for my uh, waiter today. And we do. We often do. If we go out, we'll pray for them. But I always want to get it. And sometimes it's, it's literally like they put the plate down. They're like, ah, can we pray for you? Yes, of course. Pray for health. Bye. You know, and they leave. And it's like, well, we want to pray for you now. Would you stand here and pray now? And it's funny. And they're like, I open up your, you open up your eye and you're like, what are they doing? They're like looking over and like, oh gosh, who sees me? These people, you know, it's, it's awkward for them and everybody else. But it's, it's meant to be an invitation to say, hey, just look at it. it, this, it our message is offensive when we preach it, not just when we think it. <laughs> it needs to come out of our mouths. I would love to see new conversion growth this year because I know God has people to save this year. He does in our city. And i rather grab them than another church. It's not competition, but I love having new, fresh conversions. People that are just like, man, my life, I was lost, I was blind, but I can see and I'm found. I want those types of people. It makes it alive and energetic and fun. It's not the youth. Youth are just as disgruntled as the old people. They are this year, these, this generation. Tr- truly, go on campus. They're angry. They're frustrated. They're mad. They think they're intellectual, but they're dumb. <laughs> In the truest sense. In the truest sense. But I want to see new conversion growth. And the only way to get there is to preach the gospel. But just know that it also comes at cost. All right, number two, Stephen was full of courage and wisdom. We need courage and wisdom this year. We do. When we're filled with faith, the Holy Spirit, grace, and power, guess what? We'll have opposition. We're going to. We've talked about this so many times, church. How many times when you're living out your faith, even with another Christian who is not living out their faith, there's friction, right? There's jealousy. There's competition. There's envy. As James talks about all sorts of demonic wisdom, wisdom of the world, competition. But the wisdom of God is is love. Patience. So, as I said earlier, these people were probably a part of a... So, let me just read. I'm sorry. Read in verse 9. You don't know what I'm talking about unless you read it. But, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, Sicilian Asia. These were from uh, another synagogue, like I said. I, I think that Paul was probably a part of that, especially the one from Sicilia. From, and that is pretty awesome. When I read that, I was like, man, that's so cool. I didn't even catch that, that Paul was most likely from that. He was right there in the scene, and he was listening to the gospel, and he was probably giving some sort of defense. Guys, apologetics are going to be more important in these coming days than probably perhaps it ever has been. It's going to be so important to defend the faith. 
Now, listen, I, I remember one of my mentors once said, uh, you know, he quoted Charles Spurgeon that just as a lion doesn't need to be defended, all you need to do is unlock the cage and let him loose. <laughs> he doesn't need you to defend the lion. <laughs> you don't need to really defend the word of God. Just unleash it. Just unleash it. But I do think it's important to know what you believe and why you actually believe it. And you find that in 1 Peter 3.15. In the midst of persecution, he was talking to the persecuted church. What he said is in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. What is your defense? I feel like God is real. Well, that's not going to work. You know, I, I used to think, you know, I, I bought into this uh, uh, quite some time ago, and I'll tell you how scary this is. But years ago, I used to buy into this idea that, you know, I, I think somebody, one, somebody said it, some preacher said it, I don't know, and it's become kind of famous now. But you can argue facts all day long in a court, but you can't argue your testimony. False. That is totally False. And what today, today, what, how, I'll just, I could go through the court cases of the last decade. You know how the Supreme Court ruled gay marriage? It wasn't on facts. It was on feeling. And this is how the Supreme Court is beginning to rule now, is on feeling. This person here now in the front row is psychologically harming me by telling me that the Bible says... So therefore, now the Supreme Court can rule in favor of this person who is psychologically damaged. Scary. Very scary. And how, if any of you get put into a courtroom, your test, some other testimony from some sort of false witness, whiny baby of the culture could actually win over the facts is unbelievable. But that's the day and age we live in. Because that's what happened. That's ultimately what convicted Stephen was false witnesses, angry mobs. Does that sound familiar? The angry mobs of social media, the angry mob of the media today. I mean, it's just, let's just stir them up. <laughs> let's get everybody angry. That's what, can, that's what ultimately killed Stephen. There were no facts. Because he wanted to hear the facts, Jesus indeed did raise from the dead, and he's coming back to judge. <laughs> Unreal. But you know what they do? Uh, th so they were just, in Leviticus 24, it says, 24.16, it says, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death, so stone him. That's exactly what they did. They found some sort of facts, and they were partially right in the fact that they could indeed find a cause to stone Stephen, but under the wrong understanding, they, they didn't realize that he wasn't blaspheming God, and he wasn't blaspheming the temple, which could, you'd be, you could be stoned. What was he doing? He says, even Jesus said that he would destroy this temple in three days, he'd raise it up. What was he talking about? His body which was the true tabernacle, God with us, Emmanuel. God was literally with us in the 
2,000 years ago and walked on the sandy desert of Israel. Today he's with us in our spirits, the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. They just misunderstood the scriptures. And it says in Deuteronomy 19, 18, and 19, it says that you are to kill, likewise, just as you are to kill the blasphemer, you are to kill the false witness. They all should have died that day legally. God will deal with the false witness. He will deal with those who falsely accuse. And then also, he didn't waver. If, the reality is, guys, I'll just say this, that you will notice more ad hominem attacks, which just is a fallacy, a fancy way of saying they just attack you because they don't like you. There will come a time where people in your workplace will accuse you and try to get you in trouble just for the very fact that they don't like you. Jesus said in John 15 that you will be hated. And that's true. But you know what I love about Stephen, which is the point of this whole passage? He did not waver in courage. He knew the scriptures. He knew what Deuteronomy said. He knew what Leviticus said. He didn't didn't need a lawyer. Why? Because his lawyer was standing right before him. You know the ultimate lawyer? Jesus. Let me tell you, the the day that you die, the day that you're on your deathbed, the only lawyer that you're going to call for is Jesus. The only advocate that you have, according to 1 John 2, 1, is the advocate with the Father. In 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, what does it say? He is faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you find yourself in sin, call upon the advocate, your true defender, lawyer, he will defend you and wipe your slate clean and make you right with God. It's the only lawyer that matters. There's a lot of crooked lawyers in today in there. But he's the only one that's not. You have a great persecutor. His name is the devil. Revelation 12 says he accuses you day and night. Day and night he accuses you. But we overcome by what? The testimony of Jesus. The testimony that he has saved our lives and the, his blood it says in Acts 7, 51 to 53, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers persecute? And they killed those who have previously announced the coming of the righteous one and whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You, have, you received the law as, as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. How many know you can have the word of God and not obey it? You can have the word and not love it. Let us be a people who have literally this Bible in our hands that costs so many people, but let's actually love it, treasure it, study it, live it, and teach it. That's our calling. That's our mandate. Last but not least, Stephen's countenance. In verse 15, it says that his face shined like an angel. Do you know what we need? We need men and women who are full of faith. We need men and women who are full of grace, full of truth, full of courage, full of boldness, but people that look like they've literally encountered Jesus that morning. I want, I, I've, how, many of, how many of people have come up to you and said over the years and said, man, your face just looks like it's glowing. It just glows. You just have something like on your life. That's what they should be saying about us. And just right even literally in the midst of it, of, 
many of us are not going to have probably people at our workplace raise a stone at us. But as they were raising stones, you know, it's not really polite to stare. But they were staring at Stephen, and they were like, this doesn't look like a man that's going to get stoned to death. He looked so peaceful. He looked so calm. He looked so confident. Why? Because he was looking at Jesus. So many Christians, sadly, they look so frightened. They look just as frightened as the world. They look just as terrified as everybody else. We can't look like that. Probably it's because we're frantically leaving the morning from our house, running, grabbing our coffee, grabbing whatever we need for work and driving to work, probably listening to a worship song or two and getting into work and then realizing we're in an environment that is so anti-God. And when we're in that environment, our faces aren't shining because we haven't been with Jesus. We need to be with him. Isaiah 55, 5, we love that passage. We call the people we don't know. Why? Because God's put glory on us. He's put his glory on Stephen. He's put his glory on us. He radiated the holiness and glory of God because he was looking at him. Now, that's not some sort of existential look like, oh, we're just trying to find, like trying to picture Jesus' face and gaze at his literally eyes. I, we don't know what he looks like. He didn't reveal that to us. But he did reveal the word. So as we stare at the word of God, as we pray, as we walk with him, we'll be able, our faces will shine like him. How do we shine like stars in Philippians 2? We look at him. Uh, Exodus 34, 27 and 35, Moses came down the mountain and his face was shining with the glory of God. Matthew 17, 2, it says, Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shined like the sun and his garments became white as light. You know the difference between Moses and us and Jesus? Jesus' beauty and the glory of God radiated from within himself because he's God. And the glory of God radiated outside of Moses because it was a reflection. It was literally like the moon versus the sun. That's the difference. What does that mean? Again, our prayer journals, we're desperate. We're desperate for him. What is Walt's writing? Yeah, I had an encounter with Jesus. Well, show me what, what, how is that, how did that happen? Oh, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. I walk with him. This is what his word said today. This is who God is. This is how he revealed himself to me today. And your face begins to shine because you realize the word is outside of ourselves. We're under it. And I know the word says I'm gonna, there's gonna be a day where I'm gonna write the word on your hearts and that is true. But the word did not originate here. It originated in him. And that makes us desperate. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11, if the ministry of death and the letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation was, has glory, which is the 10 commandments and the law, much more does the ministry of righteousness, the cross, Jesus abound in glory for indeed what had glory in this case, has no glory on the account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades was, glor- with, with, was with glory, much more that remains 
is in glory. And then Psalm 4, 6 says, who will show us any good? And I believe your coworkers are asking for this. Who will show us any good? I believe the world is asking for that. I believe people in Japan are asking for that. They may not be thinking that, maybe not conscience, you know, on their minds, but I believe underneath all the distractions, they're asking us, who can show us God? Who can show us someone that actually walks with God like Moses did? Who can show us that person? Well, let me tell you, Stephen did. Stephen showed all those religious people that didn't know anything about God but just the word. He said, that person knows God. And that caused a godly jealousy in them realizing, man, I have all. I'm on more than this man, this distributor of food, whoever he is. But they realized his face shined with the glory of God, and they realized, I'm killing someone that knows him that's looking at the very Jesus that we killed just moments and months before. It says, many will say, Psalm 4, 6, who will show us any good? And this is the prayer. Lift up the light of your face upon us. It also says it like this in number 625, the Lord causes face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. We need his blessing, his face to shine on us if there's going to actually be any hope of the world, in the world, in our workplace, in the nations, on campus, as it gets darker and darker. But like Isaiah 60 says, it'll get lighter. In the midst of darkness, we will shine like stars, it says in Philippians 2. This is my hope, really, as we close. This is my hope. I want to read a, a, a quote to you guys, uh, kind of a, I guess you could say a, a New Year's quote. And I believe that this is more relevant than ever before here. It says, from Charles Spurgeon, it says, I wish, my brothers and sisters, that during this year you may live nearer to Christ than you ever have done before. Depend on it. Depend upon it. It is when we think much of Christ that we think little of ourselves. Isn't that true? Little of our troubles. Little of the doubts and the fears that surround us. Begin from this day, and may God help you. Now listen to this. This isn't easy. Never let a single day pass over your head without a visit to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross at Calvary. Let that be our year. Let this be our year. There's going to be suffering and trials, but also glory and exaltation. There's going to be the valley, the shadow of death, and also the mountaintops of glory, of joy and celebration, all of it. That's 2021. I'm not going to give you some sort of crazy prophetic word that's going to jolt us out of our seat and promise only good. That's foolishness left for certain circles. But for us in this house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24 said at the end, the only thing that ultimately led to the demise of Israel was two times when they took their eyes off of the word of God. It says in Joshua 1, it begins with, do not depart from the word of God, and it ends with, we do not and we will not Depart from the word. 
we want to have relationship with God is for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what we're doing. That's what we're believing for. And I'm telling you, God is going to give you the grace to do that this year. He's going to give you the grace to walk through the valley of the shadow of death because you have a shepherd that will walk you through it. And he will even, here, even get this, even worse than the valley of shadow of death, he's going to prepare a table before you in the presence of what? Your enemies. Your enemies. And if you encounter Jesus, you'll be able to endure even the hatred of your enemies. Guys, let's not divide this year. Let's not give in to the the things of this world, the culture of this world. Let's find a history and anchor in the word of God and also the early church fathers all the way through the Reformation and the Great Awakening. We have wonderful, amazing men and women of God who have sacrificed so much to give us this glorious, incredible Bible that we have. They taught us how to pray. They taught us how to endure. They taught us how to overcome. This is our history. We are not an anti-culture. We're a Christian culture, and we have family. Do not forget that. Let's pray.